This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This past week, uh, Leslie and I were uh, in California and uh, it was just the two of us, which sounds very romantic, I know, uh, especially since I think it's been 13 years since the two of us were by ourselves for a week, okay? I mean, so it's a pretty monumental occasion uh, for us to get away. However, there, I've never been through a week, and I, I mean this, where there was so much noise and harassment. We actually ended up coming back two days earlier. We had extreme sickness in our home. Uh, If I started going through the list of how many things happened in that week while we were there, uh, it's just laugh out loud uh, for all of us. We would just be chuckling. That said, the amount of prayer that Leslie and I shared together this last week was superabundant, to use a great term in the New Testament. In other words, it was almost complete prayer the entire time. And so I want to thank uh, any powers of darkness that sought to distract us while we were there. But what it did is it led us to the throne of grace at a whole other level. And we took it as a compliment. If the devil is that afraid of Leslie and I spending a week together uh, without any noise, well, then we take that week as very significant. God uh, obviously had a purpose for it. And I'm going to give you just a briefing really quickly of... In the process, I feel like as we were in prayer for such a long period of time, God was able to go deeper past surface issues into the deeper terrain of my soul where some things have been compacted uh, from a lot of pain and a lot of challenge that I've gone through in ministry. And there were... uh, two things that I would say that he brought me to repentance in, in the process. And the reason I share it with you isn't because it may affect you, but at the same time to be an example of the fact that no matter how long we serve Christ, even in good conscience, that there can be certain things that when we spend time in the presence of God, he can lift out that weren't conscionable actions on my part, but were reactions in to, to certain things. Uh, the first being... I'm very cognizant, for instance, of the story of Mary and Martha, and I refer to it all the time for our our staff, and I say, I want to be a Mary ministry and not a Martha ministry. I do not want to do just, I don't want to just toil for the sake of Jesus, but I want to do the better part. I want to have the role that truly pleases God, and yet in this process, I felt like God showed me that so much of what I do and have been doing over the past year especially has been toiling in the name of Jesus out of good conscience, doing what I want to do the very best I can to please Jesus. But he brought me to a fresh realization of my propensity to do things in my own strength when at all possible. And uh, I 
I was brought to a deep place of repentance there, and I also want to, because I'm sure I've dragged other people through that at this last year, and I just want to seek your forgiveness as a body for even going in the direction of Marthanus. I can't stand it. I don't want it, but it's a propensity that I have. I'm a hardworking guy, grew up with a good work ethic, and you know I was taught skills to use and to unfortunately, to lean on at times. And so that's, that was a deep thing that God worked on in me. And also, one of the other things was uh, the campus grounds uh, that we have here. I have, this is, might sound more humorous than anything, but God brought me to repentance on this of words that I've spoken against it. Instead of treating what God has given us here as a blessing, I have called it an albatross, I've called it a hindrance as opposed to a blessing. And if any of you have kids, you understand the significance of not ever allowing the devil to turn you against the blessing that he has given you into one of those things like, boy, if I didn't have kids, I could really function for Jesus Christ. God has given me a gift, a blessing in my life. And yes, it is very weighty. But I want to have God's attitude towards these things. And in any way that that has affected any of you, I want to seek your forgiveness as a body for not having the attitude of Christ thoroughly in every area uh, of my life. I want to look at this church. I want to look at this campus and the ministry we have here as the greatest blessing that I've been given and to function accordingly. I'm with him, choosing to be numbered with the fools. I really struggled with the name for this one. Uh, This is sort of an outflow of my week, uh, and I didn't have a lot of time this week to prepare a message, so the fact that there's a message that is going to be delivered this morning is more in the supernatural category than anything. But uh, there's a lot of deep things that God did. It wasn't just repentance. It was a deep work of exhortation and encouragement that God was doing, and uh, it was a very, very precious week, that's what I can say. And any of you that have been around uh, Ellerslie for any length of time, you may recognize the title, not because I've had a title of this before, but because there's a quote uh, in my life uh, that comes from my sister that I'll get to in just a second that uh, I rehearse a lot. Uh, And The time frame in which we live, you have to be watchful of what you side with. And if you side publicly with certain things right now in our culture, it could mean the end of your business. It could mean the end of your solace and peace. And it is a unique time where we are being asked in the inner dimension of who we are, are we willing to stand? Now, I'm very watchful as a leader to be careful what I choose to stand for. In other words, there are things that are being attacked right now in our country that I feel deeply about and I care about. And there's part of me, I made a blog this last week that was supposed to go live on Friday and I didn't release it um, and it still may, who knows, but... I chose not to because of my position. I want to make sure that I don't detract anyone from seeing the main thrust of my life, which is Jesus Christ. 
and to stand on issues of uh, the presidency of the United States and if we should be honoring him, of our police forces, of the flag, and if we should be honoring it. These things matter to me as a citizen of this country, as a student of the Constitution, as an under, uh, one who understands the history of our country and used to teach it. I do care, but there's something I care more about, and it's a hill I'm willing to die on, and I don't want to die on a smaller hill. I want to die on the right one. And so I didn't release the blog this week because I don't want to ever mislead the body of Christ into thinking that that is a high enough hill to die on. At the same time, I still feel very strongly about it. So as a Christian, I'm trying to discern how to exhort the, the church of Jesus Christ in our generation to behave as Christians and to not disparage and show disregard and disrespect because of a political difference, but to learn how to be as Christ. When you see Paul's rebuke to the church at Corinth, it's because of their petty divisions. And what we have in Christianity is petty divisions. That's what denominations even are. It's petty divisions. Instead of focusing on the person of Christ, which unites, we are divided over pettiness. And what I don't want to ever participate in is petty division. I want us to unite on that which only can unite us, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to divide, I want to divide on that point as well. I'm with him. I'm guessing you know who the him is. It's Jesus Christ. That's who I'm with. I'm with Jesus Christ no matter where that takes me and no matter how I am ill-treated because of it, whether I receive an applause for it from a certain crowd that just happens to love people that follow Jesus Christ, or I receive a round of boos, it makes no difference. I have to make my choice of where I stand. And so this message is sort of a call to all of us to allow God to sink deep into that decision-making center of your existence and to recognize that Christianity is not passive. It is an active engagement with truth. And if Jesus Christ is worthy of your life, prove it. Stand up. In this story that I'm going to unfold for us today that comes out of 1 Samuel, there is a choice that is made to either be numbered with the fearful or to rise up and to do that which most would consider absolutely insane, and that's to stand for the glory of God in a generation. This story is so palpably powerful, and I pray that it works deeply in us as a body. So Amy Carmichael uh, felt led of God to travel to Japan. You know, most of us know her as the famous missionary to India, but she started in Japan. She was very sickly, and actually, that's the reason she returned home from Japan is the missions board actually forced her to go home because her physical health could not handle it. And her story of her journey over to Japan, when rehearsing it, Leslie and I repeated it this past week because of all the noise we had this last week, we were just laughing. And so we were thinking of all the missionary stories that are similar. And we were thinking of Amy Carmichael, where literally the she finally gets to Japan, right? She's in this boat, and she finally makes it across. It's this miserable trip across the ocean. She finally gets there, but they cannot dock because of an extreme storm. The waves are too high, so the, the boat would, be, you know, would crash, 
And so they're stuck there. Everyone's seasick, and they cannot go any further. So they're there, but they can't dock. They can't get to solid ground. All she wants is solid ground. God, give me solid ground. And so the only way to get them in, I mean, this is like, I don't know if it was days, I don't remember, but a tugboat is assigned the task of actually, they, they get on some kind of pulley system between the two, and I know it was a bucket. She had to get into a bucket and go across a pulley system into the tugboat. And by the way, a tugboat isn't an ideal place to get into in the first place, in the midst of this storm. So it's just like harrowing adventures. Her life is hanging in the balance as she's in this bucket and going over this. I mean, it's just absolute torment, mental torment as she's going through this. She can see Japan right there, but she can't seem to get there. And so she finally, you know, on the tugboat, gets to the land. And you'd think, you know, now we finally have uh, the ah. She gets there, and someone had been coordinating with her to meet her there in Japan at the port, and that person isn't there. So now she's in Japan in a foreign country. She doesn't speak the language, and she's drenched. She's absolutely miserable. She sits down on her suitcases, recognizing that no one is there. She has no idea what to do. And this is what she does. She laughs. And she says, I can't wait, O Lord, to see what the angels will do. And less than I repeated that multiple times this week, that there's a proper response to those moments when everything seems impossible. And there's an improper. And most of us default to the improper, and we've never tasted of the proper response. Most of us go into fear mode, anxiety mode, fret mode, anger mode, frustration mode. But there's a different mode. It's known as Jesus. And when we go into the mode of Jesus, we laugh. I mean, you know that the nations are conspiring against the anointed one. You know that they're surrounding him and they, with evil intent. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And so there's a proper attitude that we have towards what we could call impossibilities. And this story that we're going to go through today is a story of impossibilities. And it's the way in which one man handled the impossible compared to the rest of his nation. Chrissy's question. So this is where the title of this one comes from. I'm with him. My sister, Chrissy, <clears throat> uh, she, she laid out, she, I have all sorts of Chrissy quotes. You hang around me and you'll get a Chrissy quote. Uh, but Chrissy said, okay, Eric, imagine that you're at Calvary and Jesus is hanging between two thieves on a cross. Everyone is reviling him and mocking him and even the disciples have fled. So this is, this is your moment of decision. You know who that is, Eric. You know that that work on the cross is everything. That is your life. You know something that maybe all the people there didn't, but you know. Would you be willing to walk up to the foot of that cross and have everyone look at you and go, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? Are you with him? Stick your finger up, even if it's quavering, and point to that bloody pulp of a man who is your savior and say to that mocking crowd, I'm with him. Boy, that, that question has been with me for decades. Because there's so many moments, when we're sitting here, it sounds easier to do it than when we're out there. When someone is reviling Jesus, it's just easy to pull back and say, you know what, you know, I'm not going to make an issue of these things. And yet, something about Christianity demands us to rise up, demands us to speak what is uncomfortable and unpleasant. 
because that's what we do. We represent truth. We're emissaries of the gospel. And if we don't speak, how will they know? And so our silence does not equate to salvation. Our silence equates to only a greater empowerment to the kingdom of darkness. Now, when I was in college, there was something called pulling a lutey. I wasn't too happy about this. Uh, I was a freshman uh, on the soccer team in college, and this team was, like, really good. And I felt so uncomfortable even being there. And the coach is watching. He's one of those coaches that hardly says anything. But when he speaks, everyone stops and listens. And uh, so I had a breakaway. The ball got loose, and I was... Uh, the, the goalie, our, our goalie that was waiting in the goalie box uh, for me, uh, he was an All-American, and he was intimidating. If ever you were approaching him, he would literally yell. He'd be like, ah! And he'd come running towards you. And it literally... As a freshman, I mean, first of all, I have this awe for this guy as a goalie to start with, right? So I have a breakaway, and it's just me against the guy, <laughs> the machine, the animal. And he's like, ah! And I, I leaned back. I mean, did everything wrong in that moment. And the ball went sailing. Oh, I mean, I have a wide-open goal. All I have is one guy standing between me and the goal, and the ball went sailing over about 10 feet above the, the goal. It was just a terrible kick. And for the rest of the soccer season, that was called pulling a lootie. There's a way to handle those crisis moments in your life when the big guy, the animal, is running at you with the growl. And there's ways you shouldn't. And what I don't want to encourage you to do today is to pull a looty. Okay? Eric is not your example. There are better examples than, than this. I want to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so to the degree that I am doing what matches this message follow that. But wherever you've seen me not follow this message, please don't pull a Ludi. Pulling a Jonathan. Jonathan's the hero of our story uh, today, and I'm a big fan of Jonathan. To really understand this story, I need to give you a couple tools for handling scripture overall, and that is there's always a first and there's always a second. And I know you've heard me say this many times, but it's important in this story. There's a first and there's a second. The first is unable to save. The second is the one that is able to save. The first is uh, the flesh. The second is the spirit. The first is like the old covenants. It can reveal your problem. It can show you your need for a savior, but it cannot supply that savior in and of itself. It cannot provide the salvation. It can only be a schoolmaster, which leads you to the second, which is the new covenant, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus, and that can save. So all throughout the Bible, you have first and seconds, Cain and Abel. God receives the offering of the second. He rejects the offering of the first. Then you have Ishmael, Isaac. The firstborn cannot please God. It's only the second, that which is born of promise, that can please. You have uh, Esau, Jacob. The firstborn looks the part of the hero. He's hairy all over. He's a hunter. But God rejects the first and chooses the second, the weak man, the plain man dwelling in tents, and who later gains the name Israel. And then we have the first king of Israel, Saul, the second king, David. All throughout the Bible, we see this pattern. First Adam, last Adam. The first Adam failed. He cannot save. And all of us are born in that first Adam. We are the descendants of his deed on, in, in the Garden of Eden. 
His sin, when he sinned, we were in him, biologically, genetically. We shared in that failure. And so the secret to Christianity is to put off the first and actually step in by faith into the second man. And then we share in his work. So in this story, what you have is you have a father and a son. You have a first and a second. And the first being Saul, the first king of Israel, who is rejected by God. Saul, his, I'm sorry, Jonathan, his son, is like us. It's an incredible picture of our position. It's also in this story a picture of Jesus Christ. But think about who our father is. You ever heard the term old man? That's the term Paul actually uses, and we've used it. We don't typically use it today, but I remember back in the Leave it to Beaver, uh, you know, Eddie Haskell's like, yeah, my old man. And that always means the father, okay? And so it's somewhat disrespectful, so I wouldn't encourage you to bring back the term. But we have an old man, and that is Adam or Saul. We come from that stock, and, so, and Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. What awaits him? The kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And yet there is a better man that is chosen. In fact, the context of this story is actually when that de- declaration is made. I've chosen a better man uh, to replace you, Saul. Well, that better man is not Jonathan. It is actually David. And so Jonathan has a choice to make. Does he self-preserve and seek his own kingdom and his own wealth and stand with his father? Or does he stand with the better man, David? Now, that's not necessarily what this exact part of the story is about, but that's the decision Jonathan has to make. Jonathan is not like his father. Jonathan makes a different choice. His father gives way to fear and trepidation, and Jonathan gives way to faith, and he believes that God is able And so this story is quite something. We'll call it pulling a Jonathan. So let's go to the backdrop of the story in 1 Samuel 13. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Okay, so let's just get some numbers out on the table here. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Okay, now that may not sound like a lot to you, but when you hear how big the uh, army of Israel is, That'll sound very impressive, okay? 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now to add to that, and the people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. We don't even have a number for that one. All we know is that it's a numberless congregation of soldiers that is marching against them. So we have a lot uh, of military firepower that is coming against Israel here. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, okay, now there's, there's pulling a Saul and pulling a Jonathan. So this is pulling a Saul right here. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. Not a very good situation here. I don't don't know if you have enough of the feel of what's going on here. But I want you not to just go back in time to this and cluck our tongues and shake our heads and go, what a, a bunch of fearful idiots. You see, this is very common for any of us. Whenever we feel outnumbered, see, the devil makes a big bark. And he makes a big scene. 
And he, you know, he wants to bring about fear, trepidation, fretting, and anxiety. This is his power over you. It's like opening the door to a winter storm. You see, if you keep the door closed and you stay in faith, that storm stays on the outside. But if you give way to fear and anxiety, you open a door. And that's the avenue. It's like the legal access of the devil to control. He controls through fear. And so as a result, what you see is the Philistines have these guys completely under their thumb. And I mean, would you fear uh, Israel if they're trembling and hiding in holes and in caves and in thickets? I mean, come on, guys, what is this? Aren't you the people of God? Isn't Jehovah your king? What is this? The signs of imminent defeat. So if you thought that was bad, okay? Now, the fact that they have this numberless host, you don't even know how many Israel has. I'm gonna give you a, a heads up, 600. Israel has 600, and this is how they're behaving. <laughs> so that's, that's what Israel has. And the Philistines, I mean, this isn't just bad odds. This is ridiculous, okay? This is like, just give up. Saul, just give up. I don't know what you're facing in your life. I don't know the odds. I don't know your circumstances. But I know the world in which you live, and I know the devil that wants to destroy you. You have stood up for Jesus Christ. You have begun to take steps towards him, and I know the opposition that awaits. So, I want you to be a character in this story, and I want you to make decision in your soul. The signs of imminent defeat, 1 Samuel 13. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. Pause. The Philistines had basically captured every one of their metal workers in Israel. There was no one that knew how to work with metal in all of Israel. Therefore, there was absolutely zero weaponry in all of Israel. Oh, it, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So not only... <clears throat> now, I gave you a heads up on the fact that Israel has 600. It's 600 without weapons. I don't know if you were a betting person where you're going on this one. And now we have the Philistines with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and a numberless army that's like the sands on the seashore coming against them. So what would be reasonable? Fear? Run for your life? I think that is actually reasonable. If you are thinking first man. You see, the second man thinks differently. In this story, you're going to see two different ways of thinking. You're going to see Saul, and you're going to see Jonathan. And they think completely opposite. One man steps out of the 600, refusing to be numbered with the fearful. I wanted to name this message, refusing to be numbered with the fearful. It was just way too long. But that is actually what this message is. It's refusing to be numbered with the fearful. And right now in your life, there's always bait. I mean, the devil is always conspiring to work the details of your life and the complexities of your life to bring you to a place of anxiety. This won't work. You can't do this. What's going to happen? And I want you in the depths of your soul to have a doggedness to say, I refuse to be numbered with the fearful. Jonathan is looking around saying, Dad, what are you doing? Men, what are you doing hiding in holes? Guys, do you not know who we serve? 1 Samuel 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, 
said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines. This is, the word audacious fails in this situation. This is so ridiculous, so bewildering. You see, most of us start right here in the story and we don't know the context. We don't understand that there are 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and a numberless crowd of soldiers. And there is one man who rises up and says to his armor bearer, who's in covenant with him, he needs to go with Jonathan wherever he goes, right? The armor bearer still has a choice. But he says, come. Could you imagine being the armor bearer? He's like, did you, did you count what they have over there? This is outrageous. Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. Isn't it just odd that in this story we get the details? I mean, the Bible is very watchful in what details it gives. We know that Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. What a bizarre little piece of information to give us, right? That, that Jonathan goes up between two sharp rocks, and these rocks have names? I don't know how many of you just walk around like, yeah, the name of this rock is such and such, the name of this rock. We don't name rocks, do we? We name mountains, maybe hills, but... A rock? I mean, what an odd statement. We actually know the names of these rocks. So the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. I've been pondering this all week long, this exact statement. I've known this statement for my entire Christian life. However, I've been pondering it from all sorts of different angles, and it is the audacious thinking of God. It, my, my classic way of looking at this is God doesn't mind if it's one against a million or if it's a million against a million. God's going to win, right? At the same time, I also would like to liken it to no matter what our circumstances are. So no matter how big of a challenge we are facing, it doesn't intimidate God. That a lot of us think, well, if I have a $10 bill that needs to be paid, all right, well, maybe I can handle that. But if it's a $10,000 bill, well, <laughs> that's too big for God. What if it's a $10 billion bill? Do we ever get to the point where it's actually too big for God. And so what, in, what I was pondering this week is that statement from the mindset of saying it doesn't matter how many there are out there. If there is one who is willing to rise up in faith, it doesn't matter to God. He'll save by me or by all 600 of us. It makes no difference. But if one will stand up, it doesn't matter how many there are out there. Who is this man willing to follow the fool? So in this story, you could be Jonathan, but Jonathan is an incredible picture of Jesus, so we can leave that position to Jesus in this story, because it is an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a place for us to step into the story here, and that's with the armor bearer position. 
The armor bearer, could you imagine being the armor bearer? Just put that skin on for a little bit as we go through this story. Because you're standing up against your king, Saul, the one who has always ruled your life, and you are defying it. That first life, that old man, you are defying it, and you are going with the fool. You are going with the one that everyone would say, that is ridiculous. What are you doing? Sit down, Jonathan. You're going to get all of us killed if you make those guys mad. Everything about this situation is harrowing. And the armor bearer, we never see him uh, fearful. We never see him anxious. The guy just sort of trusts implicitly Jonathan. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. I, I, I want that to be my quote to the word of God when it speaks to me. That's what I want. I don't care where it's leading me. I don't care if I have to leave everything behind. I don't care if 558, 598, sorry, I need to get my math right. 598 are still back in the camp in fear. Am I willing to go with Jesus no matter where he calls? Pulling a Jonathan. So let's look at what a Jonathan does. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. Uh, Jonathan, uh, not the brightest idea. I mean, maybe sneak up on them, but you don't show yourself to them. Hey, hey guys, don't, you don't do that. This is his idea. We will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand. And this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. So what we know is that there is a numberless horde of soldiers, but they're broken up into different pieces. And we have a garrison here, which is in Michmash. And this is what they are showing themselves to. I don't know how many men were there, but we know at least 20. Okay, so this doesn't sound like a very big deal when you think about the whole. At, at the same time, what backs up these men is everything. And the Philistines says, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you something, which is always, I mean, I've always laughed at that quote. <laughs> but this is the way I would interpret it. It's like, hey guys, come up here and we'll show you what men really are like. Okay, it's one of those things. It's like, we'll see if you have any guts. You dare stand in front of us? Come up here. We'll show you what a man is. That's the way I would sort of interpret this. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Now, Jonathan, you may want to think this through. You're coming up against a group of men that you have no idea how many there are. And what backs them up are a numberless horde of soldiers. Do you recognize what you're getting yourself into? The Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. This is audacity at the highest levels. I'm not sure if you're functioning in this, but this is what I desire. I desire not to count enemy troops, but to simply heed the word of the Lord, no matter where it leads, no matter how audacious it may be in the natural. So I talked about pulling a Jonathan, but how about pulling an armor bearer? You know, because this is more like us. We're not Jesus, but we can actually do the work of Jesus. And it's sort of what the armor bearer is. He, he's following the lead, the guy with the weaponry. And as we go, I'm not sure, you know, if 
Jonathan had a shield and a sword, and he gave the, the sword to the uh, armor bearer, and he took the shield? I don't know, because all I know is what it describes, where Jonathan seems to knock them all down. So I, I picture, like, the shield going, and these guys are, like, flying backwards. And then the armor bearer comes behind and kills them. That's what it says. So, I mean, the armor bearer sort of participates in this. However, he's not going to do anything without Jonathan. And so it's a pretty exciting scene. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. Now this is, if that's not impressive to you, uh, it, this is what it all leads to, okay? Now what we have is two men that left the roll call of the fearful, and they refused to remain with the fearful when God's glory was at stake. And they stepped up and basically said, God, we are willing to defy this army that we know you are stronger than. And we're not going to measure it according to natural obstacle. We're not going to number them, nor are we going to number us. We're going to number you, one, and you're God. You can do it. So what follows is what we're going to call the earthquake. And there was trembling in the camp. So Jonathan and the armor bearer take down 20 and a half acre. Okay, now that's impressive. Don't get me wrong. Especially going from fearful position, hiding in holes, to literally taking down 20 of them and risking their life to do it. But this is what follows. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. So I don't, when you hear trembling, you think fear, right? You think that they're, they're fearful, which definitely could be what's happening. But there definitely also is an earthquake. There's a shaking of all the ground, which causes an absolute panic in and amongst the Philistines. And as the classic thing happens, you know, like in other biblical stories, they start killing themselves. Uh, it's like weird behavior. But what did God need? He needed one guy to step up. And when that one guy stands out and says, I trust that my God is greater. Yeah, he slew 20. But what did God do? God was simply looking for the avenue through which he could pour out his grace into this situation. And an earthquake and a very great trembling took place. Where are you during the roll call? So right now, if, if Saul is doing the roll call of the fearful, are you going to be found? Because Saul begins to notice that something's not right here. It's like, what are the Philistines doing? They're going crazy. It says, now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Five elements of pulling a Jonathan. To refuse to be numbered amongst the fearful. It's a refusal in your soul. I refuse to side with the first man. To cower and to hide in a hole. I refuse to do that. To be actively doing the work of faith. You see, when you hide in the hole of fear, 
You are not doing the work of faith, but when you deliberately refuse to do it and you step forward, even though you're trembling as you do it, you say, God, I am available to do the work of faith. What you ask of me, I will do. You are stronger than this enemy. To smile at the impossible odds. This is like laughing on your suitcase. God is the God of the impossible, but I think he delights when we choose to laugh at our circumstances instead of cry over them. When we choose to say, huh, only God could accomplish something that would save me out of this. What a great setup. I will get no credit. God will get all of it. God loves these circumstances. Ha ha ha. In other words, to be willing to go in the direction of the laugh and to smile at the impossibilities instead of cringe over the impossibilities. Believe me, the guy talking to you right now has spent many years cringing over impossibilities. Now, I've also had my moments when I've smiled at impossibilities and mocked them and laughed them. I've had my mixture. I want to be pure in this arena of my life to be constant and continuous to always laugh at the impossibilities. There's certain impossibilities that are easier for me to laugh at than others. And there's certain impossibilities that just are really hard for me. I don't know if it's a personality thing, like all of us have different weights and tests that we would prefer over others. Like I was saying the other day, when it comes to working out the, the physical body, I don't like working out legs. And I would rather work out upper body. It's just, you know, like it doesn't bother me to work out upper body, but working out legs is like a pain that I can't stand. And then if you were to compare notes with all the other guys working out in the room, they're like, I love legs. I hate upper body. Why is that? I don't know. And so in life, we have a tendency to be tried in areas that might not be the ones we would prefer. It's like, oh, if I could just have an upper body test right now. Why do I always have to be tested in the legs? And yet that is a gift. God's saying, because your legs are weak. That's why. In other words, God wants to strengthen us into a perfect man. He wants to grow us up and mature us. To audaciously plot to defy the enemy. Doesn't that sound fun? Instead of being the defeated foe and hiding in a hole, to rise up and do the work of faith, smile at the impossible odds, and then conspire with the Spirit of God to say, God, how are we going to get them this time? God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to like, expose myself, show myself to them? Do you want me to do that? Because I'll take them. We'll, we'll do this together. To actually move into action and say, that enemy is defeated. I am not under the thumb of fear. God, these, though these circumstances seem impossible, you are greater. To head out in search of the earthquake. An earthquake in the New Testament is a symbol of God's movement. And so you'll notice an earthquake at the cross. You'll notice an earthquake at the resurrection. And you'll notice an earthquake at the outpouring of his spirit on Pentecost. We're in search of an earthquake. How do you get the earthquake? How do you get that revival? That revival in the hearts and lives of not just the church, but a dying world. How are you going to get it? You pull a Jonathan. You follow Jonathan as an armor bearer. You do what others would say is crazy. You're willing to heed the word of God no matter where it leads. You see, every one of us in here is craving that earthquake. We're craving the greater work of God. But to get to the greater work, we have to be obedient in the here and now, the moments that are trying our souls and testing our faith. The two sharp rocks. Leslie and I were going through this this week of the two sharp rocks 
I mean, the fact that they had names just made us laugh. Uh, because everything the Bible mentions is on purpose. There's so many things it skips over. Even in this story, there's hardly anything that we know. We just know that Jonathan knocked him down and the armor bearer killed him. It's like, could you give me more detail? Than this? this is an incredible thing. And that's all we get. And yet we know the names of the rocks. Why does that matter? I mean, I, the details that we crave uh, for battles and strategy, we don't get. All we get is the results. And the Lord wrought a great victory. I can't tell you how many times in Scripture it says that. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Well, how? How did he do it? I mean, what happened? Could you give me details? No, nope. no, nope, that's what you need. But then there's other times when God gives us details that we're not even caring about. I don't, I don't care about the names of the rocks. Bozes and Senna, surpassing white and glistening white, and Senna, a brambly and a thorny bush. And I've realized that I've been stuck between a rock and a hard place many times in my life. And they're two sharp rocks, and this is, this is them. You see, a surpassing white, a glistening white, is that craving for the glory of God, but feeling an impotence in being able to bring it about. It is one of the deepest aches in my life. I desire for that transfigured Christ to be revealed in this world, but I don't have power in myself to do it. And what's the other side? I have so many earthly complications. It's like you try and stand up for the glory of God, and the devil just jumps on you, tackles you, and you're, like, and you're stuck in that bramble. Welcome to the life of a Christian. Two sharp rocks, an enemy that's mocking you. You don't even have any tools of your own. It's like, where's all our weaponry? We've been, we've been plundered. You see, the church is weak, and we're between a rock and a hard place. We desire the glory of God to be revealed in this generation, but we are snared. Snared, sometimes it's just in our sin and in the defeat of allowing self to remain the ruler of our lives. But for many of us in here, we just have practical challenges, whether they be financial, whether they be health, whether they be relationships. And those things mire us into a state where we only are thinking about our concerns and we're sitting under our pomegranate tree, nursing our wounds, instead of rising up and saying, this is about something greater than me. So many of us have been caught in that cyclical pattern of defeat where we always are distracted with our own needs, our own challenges. And as a result, we're not able to see that glistening white in this world. The two sharp rocks in our lives. Bozes, a desire for the glory of God, but wholly unable to produce it in one's own strength. And Senna, caught in an impossible circumstance, unable to get out. Choosing the path of Jonathan. It's the way of audacious faith. So I had a few different illustrations for this. If any of you remember uh, Caspian, the Prince Caspian, there is, uh, you have the young uh, kids, I don't remember, I mean, Peter, Susan, I know Lucy, what's the, uh, Edmund, Edmund, and Caspian. I think all of them are there, and there's a ravine, and they were expecting to cross through, but it's an impassable ravine. I mean, it's just, you can't go across it, and yet they need to get across this thing. And uh, what lesson I would refer to this as is the hidden path. In every situation, there is a hidden path to cross the impossible. However, most of us default to pull in a saw in those moments. And yours truly has gone too quickly to saw solutions instead of heeding the hidden path. For instance, in that story, you have little Lucy who seems to have the childlike faith. 
And she sees Aslan on the other side. And Aslan basically says, come over here. And then she says to the, the rest of the crew, hey, guys, Aslan, I saw him. He wants us to come across. And they're like, you can't. There's no way across. You can't do that. And so they end up, you know, wasting who knows how much of their lives trying to cross it a different way. And they end up in that exact spot realizing there's only one way across this. Show us where you saw Aslan. And sure enough, there was a hidden way. There was a hidden path. In every circumstance that you face, there is a path across the impossible. Did you hear, hear that? I, I'm just going to say it again. In every circumstance, no matter how dire, there is a faith path, faith path across the impossible divide. So if you are at a ravine and there doesn't seem to be a bridge in the natural and it would be an impossible jump, God, I don't know how to get from here to there. There is always a way across the impossible. And that way is Jesus, to sound rather pat, but Jesus gives wisdom for what to do next, just as he gave to Jonathan. This is an impossible strait, an impossible ravine. There is nothing that can be done, but a man of faith rises up and says, God, show us the bridge across. And God shows them the bridge across. So what ends up happening, I guess, if, if you remember the story, is uh, Lucy ends up falling off the edge and there's a little ledge there and it's a little path hidden, you couldn't see it, that leads down to the bottom of the ravine and across. The trip up to Moriah. Could you imagine being Abraham and being told to sacrifice your only son, Isaac, on the mountain called Moriah? Uh, God, it's through him that my seed will be called. It's, it's his descendants that will be as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the heavens. <laughs> We, we sort of got a problem here, God, because if I sacrifice him, he's gone, and that can't be fulfilled, but you promised, which is why in the New Testament, it says that Abraham believed he could be raised from the dead. That was like his logic on it. It's like, God, I will obey you, but wow, this is like an impossible one, because if I do this, and up to that point, no one had ever been raised from the dead, and so he is literally doing something that defied all logic, and yet he still in faith obeyed. And there was a hidden path. As he was obedient and raised his knife, what did God say? Stop. There is a sacrifice. There is a lamb, a ram in that thicket. And that ram was caught in that thicket as the hidden path to make a statement for all of us to hear. The willingness to lay down our only, his only son is the symbol of love and worship. The first time those words are even used, obedience, I think, is even first time it's used in Genesis, in that story. These are like the pictures of what God has done for us. The Red Sea. Can't think of a better situation where there's a hidden path that no one could see with natural eyes. You have two mountains on either side. You have the strongest military force coming against them, and you have a sea behind you. You have no weaponry. You're a whole bunch of brick makers. You don't have any military fighting experience as a troop. And you have your women and children with you. And so that's why the Israelites pulled a Saul and said, hey, let's just humble ourselves and become servants again. Some picked up stones to throw at Moses. Why did you lead us here? God led them there. God led them into an impossible place. Isn't that hard to even comprehend? Why would, why would God lead them to such a place? To test them. Are you a believer or not? Do you believe that the God who has started a work is faithful to complete it? Do you believe that your God is the God of the impossible? Do you believe that he will always make a way? 
even when you're backed up to a Red Sea. I know it seems impossible. According to the natural realm, it is. But the God that we serve as Christians is the God of the impossible. He rules it. He possesses it. It is his territory. Our job is to believe. And there was a hidden path. It was a path through the waters. A path through the water. And that's God's secret way. The cross. Everything about the cross matches everything I'm saying. It's an impossible way. It's a burden so great. The sin of the world needs to be carried. And though it looks like weakness... Every one of these stories starts with weakness and ends with an evidence of God's strength in this realm. And the cross looks like weakness. You have the Messiah who's hanging as a bloody pulp on a tree and he breathes his last. He looks like a common criminal. What is this? It is apparent weakness, but in and through that weakness, that obedience of faith is going to come forth an earthquake. And that earthquake will save many. It will defeat and crush the head of the Philistines. And it will bring about new life to all that trust in him. Listen to this in Psalm 77. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God's way is in the sea. It's not in the normal way. It's not in the way that all of us would expect. It's not according to the wisdom of this age. Are we willing to allow God to lead us into impossible straits so that he alone can get us out? Are we willing to be obedient and get between a rock and a hard place to even allow our God to lead us in such direction where only he can get the credits, he can get the glory for what he is going to do as a direct result? Our God is faithful. Are we willing to allow him to prove it to us? Leslie and I accepted this week that our way is in the sea. That's our way. So Eric and Leslie, how are you going to do this? How are you going to navigate through this? Well, our way is God's way. It's in the sea. You can't walk across a sea. I know I can't. But God will make a way. Audacious faith. I do not want to be numbered with the fearful. I want to be with him. Wherever he is, I want to be counted with him. Let's see, we have one and, uh, and Eric, two, two. I don't mind that. I've accepted that. I've counted the cost of that. I understand what that means. That's what I choose. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.